Well, let's look at our scripture this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And you thought last week was meddling. <laughs> Let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, for the, the challenge your word always provides, especially when it gets down to we might consider more the nitty-gritty details of life and how you expect us to live, not as a set of arbitrary rules or a handbook, but how we're to actually determine the right way to live under the guidance of your Holy Spirit. You give us parameters. You compass our path and our lying down. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you too, Father, for your healing uh, Kim Johnson and ask that you continue that process and that he be able to come home soon, that uh, the doctors would be able to uh, remedy the situation that he's facing. And I ask, Father, that you would also be with us, that you would enable us this morning to have open minds, that you would give us creative thoughts as to how to apply what you're giving us this morning. That we not see just a set of rules to please you, but actually as, a, as the standards that you place in your family so we can actually function together as a body, which is your whole emphasis in this book. So help us, Father, to see these difficult things as opportunities to become united. Just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look at this text, the first thing that may cross your mind is, is this just a bunch of rules for good Christians to follow? You know, as Marty and I have stated many times over, uh, over the years, you know, context is extremely important. Context, context, context. Uh, especially in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. <clears throat> if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than to let your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than let your whole body go into hell. So if you read that, all on its own, apparently, if we're not blind in our right eye, and our right hand has not been amputated, then we're heading for hell. Unless you're sinless, of course. So as Jesus' disciples, we could take his words literally, or we can try to figure out what he's talking about in its context. I strongly suggest the latter approach in this case. Jesus tells us that sin originates from our hearts. In Mark chapter 7, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. So, so organs or limbs in and of themselves don't cause sin. 
It originates much deeper in our hearts. So, so based on that, Jesus' command here to disfigure yourself must be hyperbole. It must be a conscious exaggeration to make a point. So actually what he's telling us here is that we need to put God and his interests first ahead of anything else that might just bring temporary pleasure. So if you read this text in Ephesians, at least up to verse 32, without any context, you'd probably think that you stumbled into some Christian self-help book. It looks like a list of things that you have to do in order to make yourself acceptable to God. Which would be a major misreading of this text. So we need to put this text in the context that it belongs in the book of Ephesians. So to do that, I'm just going to look at some of the stuff that happened before we get to this section, and then a little bit of what at the end of this section. So in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and I just kind of summarize it here, Paul took great pains to help us understand who we are in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be Christ's followers, and he says them to be holy and blameless before him. God redeemed us through the blood of Christ, and he's lavished upon us, the, he says, the inexhaustible riches of his grace. And he reveals to us that his will is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. And if that weren't enough, God has made us heirs, joined heirs with Christ, so that we can display his life-changing power in our lives to the world, he says, and even to the heavenly beings. He's also given us his Holy Spirit, God himself, to live through our lives and be the guarantee of our inheritance until we finally acquire, acquire possession of it in the age to come. So our physical bodies inhabit this world now, this present evil age, but in our deepest parts, we actually inhabit God's kingdom. And we're going to live in this tension, this already and not yet situation, until the time is right for God to end the present world system and set up his kingdom on earth. So in addition to those things that he's done in the heavenly realms, then he goes on and tells us that he's broken down the wall of hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles, basically unifying all of Jesus' disciples in his body, the church. And we see that the church has always been God's goal for, for history. Matter of fact, in Christ, we're the only ones who are on the right side of history. So based on all that Christ has done for us and continues to do for us, God expects our lives then to match this new life that he's implanted within us. He expects our outward activities, our outward attitudes, our behaviors to actually reflect the relationship that we have with God through Christ. And he says that we will walk before him, walk with him in love. We're going to be spending our lives gradually being conformed to God's image from the inside out. So we've already seen that Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called at the very beginning of chapter 4. And he talks about part of the, how you do that is by following the leaders that God has given you because they're supposed to equip each one of us to mature into one body that truly represents the Savior that we serve. That's kind of the positive side. Then in this verse 17 in chapter 4, he switches to the negative side where he says, walking worthy of our calling means not walking, the way our culture walks, which includes their being fools while calling themselves wise, the fact that they're alienated from the life of God, and they live lives of self-idolatry. He says we don't take our cue from the world around us. And he does this whole thing by using this analogy of taking off your old way of living, like a garment, the way of living for yourself alone, and putting on the new person you are in Christ. 
our life in Christ now operates out of an unlimited reservoir of grace and power since God does not command us to do something that he has not already empowered us to do. Now this context I just laid out is confirmed by looking at the other end of the text in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 where he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So just like at the beginning of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, we're told we're commanded to walk in love, to imitate Christ in his obedience to the Father. So we do this as a part of his family, but not by trying to earn our way into his presence by doing good things. You know, he's not, we're not in the business of trying to earn gold stars. He says we're to live our lives as living sacrifices, with the needs of others ahead of our own selfish interests, not because God's going to love us more, but because we want to honor our Father. We're in a new family. And God adopts us into his family in an instant in time, but then we spend our lives from that point on seeking to become more like our Father because we know we're loved beyond understanding. The process is simple, but we all know it's not very easy. Which is why the Holy Spirit is here, present with us and in us, to empower us to do what God wants us to do. Let me give you a homely illustration. Let's suppose here's a, here's a boy. He's 10, 11 years old, and he's an orphan. But he's known by a missionary that you support, that your family supports in Korea. And you and your spouse are led to adopt this boy into your family. He doesn't know how your family operates, what your family standards are, what the family goals are. He does know the basics of English, but his education is very limited. What he knows best is how to survive living on the street on his own. Having parents and brothers and sisters who care about him is a whole totally brand new concept. So as this boy begins life with you, you're going to have to repeatedly let him know the expectations that you have for him as a new member of the family. You know, this is how our family operates. These are the things that are important to our household. These are the things that we do. These are the things that we don't do. So you begin the process of helping your new son be able to function in his new set of relationships. Because you want him to learn the values, you want him to learn your standards, you want him to learn your attitudes and your goals as a family. So he's in this new relationship that's worlds apart from what he's known before, before he was adopted. It's going to be a long process, it's going to be worth it in the long run because you're going to be able to see him grow and thrive instead of the early death death that he faced if he'd stayed where he was in Korea. There will be a lot of difficulties, but the end goal makes your act of grace worthwhile. That's analogous to what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He spent about three years, remember, ministering to Jews and Gentiles, this mixed congregation, who are now brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, the Gentile Christians had not had the privilege of being raised in a household where the word of God was held up or honored or even brought up or even known, known about, probably. They don't know how family, the family of God is supposed to operate. And the Jewish believers have been raised to hate non-Jews from the days of their youth, so they didn't know how to live with their Gentile family members either. So you have these two groups who need to learn how to live together in one family. How are they going to do that? Well, Paul is trying to help them here to understand what that looks like. Just like today, the culture didn't really help them learn to live as a family of God. People don't come to faith in Christ having been taught by the culture how Christians truly live. 
the culture in Ephesus, and of course in our world as well, is doing everything it can to pit one group against another so that it can destroy any standards of morality, especially anything that's set forth in the scripture. So, the Apostle Paul is saying here, here are our standards as the family of God. This is how we live together as God's family. And where does he start? What's the first one, the first standard that comes to his mind? Stop lying to each other. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So Paul phrases this command, like all these commands that we're going to see, in terms that he used in that preceding context. Put off lying to one another. Put on speaking the truth. Why? Because we're members one of another, he says. He gives us the reason. So he's writing to Christians in a church in which he spent considerable time teaching and counseling. He knows these people. And he starts his listing of family responsibilities with the necessity of telling the truth. Well, how serious is telling the truth when it comes to looking at the Bible? It's a pretty serious issue. Let me just give you, if you look at the book of Proverbs, and you'll, you'll see, but I'll just give you one example from the book of Proverbs in Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. That makes it pretty clear. Not beating around the bush there. But it also goes not just from wisdom literature, but all the way out to the very end of time in Revelation chapter 21. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So lying, obviously, or deceiving, is a pretty serious issue. In that list that I kind of alluded to before from Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. He says, not what goes in, but what comes out. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, sander, pride, foolishness. It's like reading about Jesus' thesaurus, isn't it? All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So back in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul tells us the old nature, our pre-conversion nature, is corrupted. Is corrupted because of desires. And the thing that makes those desires bad is because they come from deceit. There's nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. What's bad is when desire goes after the wrong things. And the reason desire goes after the wrong things is because our hearts are deceived about what is really desirable. And I think most desires that lead people to lie can be summed up in these two areas, fear and greed. Either fear of the consequences of telling the truth or wanting something so badly, such as drawing attention to yourself, that you're willing to deceive to get it. So, and my goal this morning is not to give you a detailed set of rules to live by. That would be kind of defeating Paul's purpose here. I'm going to try to clarify what the text means with an occasional illustration that may or may not fit. I'm going to leave the application to you and the Holy Spirit. The proof is left to the student. I know you hate that at school, but... Now you get to do it again. So what is truth? Well, truth is conformity to God's standards as revealed in his word. 
You have to have something to compare situation with in order to determine if it's truth. So you're going to need to have a true standard. You need to have a, a plumb line. And we know that God is the truth, and he always speaks the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, falsehood or lying is any deliberate misrepresentation of the truth, of the facts. So if you are a child of God, truth has to be where you start. When a parent asks, who spilled the grape juice on the sofa? God expects an honest answer. Not a lie because you don't want to get into trouble. Not blaming your brother or your sister or the dog, but telling the truth. Also, when you exaggerate or stretch the truth a bit to get something you want, that too is considered lying. If you tell your mom that you cleaned your room, but all you really did was just push your toys under your bed, you're telling a lie. And parents also have to be careful with this too. I mean, we don't escape as well. Do you tell the truth about where the dent in the car came from? We have to model truth-telling one to another at any age. But also we have to keep in mind the directive is given back to us in chapter 4, verse 15, which is we're to speak the truth, how? In love. So the idea is to be kind and gracious when we speak the truth. Truth not to divide, still trying to unite. So we need to phrase the truth in such a way that it's least offensive and most sensitive to the other person's feelings. My clumsy brother wasn't watching where he was going, and he spilled his grape juice with an eye roll. That's not what speaking the truth in love looks like. We need to apply, once again, the so-called golden rule. How would I want someone else to tell me this truth? But being truthful doesn't mean that you have to reveal everything that we know about a particular matter, either. God doesn't do that with us, although we wish he would often. Give us the whole story. If your wife asks you if an article of clothing draws attention to a part of her anatomy in an unflattering way, love may dictate an evasive answer. <laughs> the question itself is kind of unfair. but uh, If you need to keep a confidence or you think that making the truth known will be damaging, you may simply reply, well, I'm not free to talk about that. <laughs> that, that may or may not work with your wife. Being truthful doesn't require that you have to share your thoughts on everything. I mean, being silent, of course, would imply agreement about something that you actually disagree with. You might need to clarify things a bit. But sometimes wisdom means keeping your thoughts to yourself. Well, how do we respond to untrue statements that our culture embraces as truth and wants to enforce us to say as well? I mean, you meet someone that you know, a friend, and she says that a mutual friend is a man in a woman's body. Laughing is probably not an option if your friend is serious at all, but silence is living a lie. One of the marks of a totalitarian totalitarian culture is forcing people to live by lies. I don't know if you're familiar with a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Soviet dissident in the 1970s, actually the 1950s, wrote a book in the 1970s called The Gulag Archipelago, where he talks about what it meant to live in Soviet society at that time and what it cost him to speak the truth, even though he's been told all the time that you have to live a lie. And his favorite phrase was, live not by lies. Because he refused to affirm anything that he knew was untrue, even though it ended up costing him decades in a prison camp, The Gulag Archipelago. 
Now, our culture is forcing us to make similar choices. If we don't confront lies with the truth, we're going to end up living two lives. Schizophrenia. We're going to mouth lies to keep our job, to keep our social standing, but then we're also going to try to find other people who are interested in speaking the truth so we can maintain our sanity. Which is why in Soviet countries and increasingly more here too where totalitarianism is rearing its ugly head in a different way, the church becomes the key group for people to flock to to be able to speak truth to one another because they're forced to, most of the time, speak lies on the outside. Well, I made a resolution, I'm going to try this anyway, that whenever I hear something spoken that I know is untrue, once again using the Bible as my standard, I'm going to challenge it and present the truth as gently and tactfully as I possibly can. Men do not birth babies. Men and women are differentiated by God from the time of creation, not a gender assigned at birth. All people are created equal in value from the time of their conception. And, of course, you can fill in a whole bunch of others. It's time, I think, to actually stand for truth. And don't live by lies. Uh, Now, how successful you're going to be could be quite interesting uh, as time goes on. And if you're interested in finding out uh, more about how this worked out in in the USSR... uh, and also the, uh, the uh, Velvet Revolution in 1989, where the Iron Curtain fell. There's a book by Rob Dreyer that's called Live Not By Lies that might, you might find helpful, one of those counter-cultural Christian books. Um, well, anyway, now that we have that solved, now we can move on to no more unrighteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Put off sinful anger and put on keeping short account with others. Why? Because we need to deprive the devil of opportunities to destroy us. So I hear a collective sigh of relief, I think, you know, that anger is not forbidden. But what is anger? Let us root anger is an active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And I'm borrowing that from a book by Robert Jones called Uprooting Anger, which I heartily recommend. This is not a self-help book. This is how to get root anger out of your heart using scripture. Anyway, but this is his definition of anger. So it's a response to some sort of provocation. And there it turns out that there are categories of anger in the Bible. And of course there are three. Divine anger. And you all know that there's a lot of references in the Bible to God's anger or his wrath. His visceral response to evil. His anger is perfect. It's a, it's a subtle opposition to real evil, especially human sinners. Because he's holy, as Paul reminded us back in verse 24. And we also know that God's anger is not limited to the Old Testament either. For example, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1, 18. And wrath is anger on steroids. So the wrath of God is revealed. That's one category. A second category really is 
righteous human anger. We can see this in the life of Jesus because he's the one who actually bridges as a, the, the, he's the God-man who bridges both categories of human and divine. Now, righteous human anger actually mimics God's anger. It's our negative response to evil that we accurately see as evil. And the third category is sinful human anger, which is where most human anger falls. Well, I realize that, that I and maybe some of you are exceptions to this. We can be blind to what's truly sinful or because deceitful lies or, or self-centered lusts kind of distort our viewpoint. Our heart is still wicked and deceitful if it's not held in check by the Holy Spirit. And we never know the whole story, so our judgments are always skewed. I mean, we even believe mass in social media. As you know from our series in Genesis way back when, the first human instance of anger is Cain, the perfect son of the perfect parents, Adam and Eve. So we see that anger starts from within the human heart. It's not necessarily caused by environmental conditions. And the devil didn't make him do it. My wife doesn't make me lose my temper. My brother can't make me angry unless I cooperate. The situation that confronts me really exposes the sin that's in my heart already. But the Bible does give us some criteria for righteous anger. If your anger falls in these categories, it may actually be righteous. But most human anger, I'll tell you right up front, is unrighteous. Because we always assume the best about ourselves. So we tend to conceal our sins with spiritual whiteout. You know what whiteout is? I keep dating myself here. I mean, after all, you know, my anger is pure. I'm not sure about yours. So using, once again, Robert Jones' book as a guide... Let's look at three marks that distinguish righteous anger that he deduced from Scripture. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin from a true perception of evil. It doesn't react to just being inconvenienced or from violations of my preferences or just from human traditions. It's a a reaction against actual sin. And righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom and his rights not my kingdom and my rights. The focus is is on offenses against God and his name, not me and my name. So the offense has to be primarily against God himself. And the third thing is that righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. It remains self-controlled. No screaming, cursing, raging, flying off the handle, It doesn't snub people. It doesn't withdraw from people. It doesn't show up as road rage. Now, there are several instances in the scriptures of Jesus exhibiting righteous anger that we could look at, and I'm just going to give you one. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the men, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy, how to destroy him. 
So religious leaders here had a wrong understanding about the purpose of the Sabbath, again, and so they opposed Jesus' intention to heal the man on the Sabbath. Well, how did Jesus respond? How does, he, how does this show us what righteous anger looks like? Because it says he was angry. He perceived their sin, the sin of the Pharisees. He says their hearts were hard and unfeeling for the plight of this poor crippled man. They're, and they refused to answer Jesus' question, and they continued to plot how to kill him. But Jesus responded to just much more than a personal offense. The sin of the leaders is actually opposing Jesus' mission as God's Messiah. They're getting in the way of what God's trying to accomplish. To despise what God was doing through Jesus, to despise his, uh, his healing work, and oppose the advancement of God's plan for redemption, and it prolongs the rule of Satan. So they were standing actually in opposition to what God was trying to accomplish. So how did Jesus' anger show itself? With perfect self-control, just like when he threw the, the individuals out of the temple that were selling wares instead of worshiping. He didn't fly into a rage. He didn't set aside his work to go somewhere else and cool off. He didn't sit down and count to ten, even in Hebrew. He counted to minister, continued to minister to the man and to others in the synagogue. Once again, fearing God, he feared no one else. He carried on pursuing justice and mercy, even though he was angry. So I have to ask the question, how does my righteous anger compare with that? Not real well. I mean, how do you react to actual sin as defined in the Bible? Do you focus on God and his concerns instead of your own? Does your anger coexist with other godly qualities? So I've been forced to conclude that my, uh, most of my righteous anger is really sinful anger. Because not only do I need to repent of my angry response to my wife, but also my self-justification that I was right and she was wrong anyway. A double repentance. So how do we deal with sinful anger? Well, we can't deal with it just by counting to ten. We need to, Paul says we need to put off harboring or justifying sinful anger and put on keeping short accounts, seeking forgiveness right away. Don't let anger, he says, become resentment. Don't let it fester. Don't let it, the sun go down on it. If we nurse it and feed it, we give Satan the opportunity to drive wedges between members of Christ's body and separates us in direct opposition to what Jesus wants, because he wants unity. So we need to pull up anger by the roots, and that's in our heart, which means instant repentance when we sin in our anger. It also means, I think, asking the Holy Spirit to head off the anger response before it actually gets there, which I'm finding out he's willing to do, because I've been relearning this myself. One of the difficulties in doing a sermon like this is you have to put it into practice. Um... So in preparation for this message, I ask God to enable me not to lose my temper with my wife or with myself when things don't go right, at least don't go the way I think they should. For example, I, had a, I shared this with Bob the other day. I was, uh, I'm building a large dining room table for someone. I put a lot of time in on this, and I needed to plane down one end to make the top flat. I planed too much. I didn't catch it until it was too late to fix it. Now, in the past, I get really angry with myself over a bonehead mistake like that, and also about the extra time it was going to take, the extra four or five hours to replace it. But it's interesting. This time, God let me know what was coming. 
And I was able to be upset but not fly into a rage that I would have in the past. I was able to exchange the rage with a resolve to replace the peace right away. So I converted angry energy into constructive energy, and I fixed the mistake. Actually, it looks a lot better now than it did before. But <laughs> and I actually ended up laughing a little bit about it, this careless mistake. Not, not really a laugh, maybe just a chuckle. But. So I'm learning to go back to the cross and to humble myself. Not to make justifications, and to make repent, do repentance where necessary when I miss it, when, when I don't allow the Holy Spirit to stop me in time. And this is where I discover that whatever God commands, he empowers us to obey. It is possible to defeat sinful anger, but it's going to be a lifelong process. Maybe not for you, but it is for me, obviously. Well, what is the next thing he gives us to put off and put on? No more stealing. You say, good, I escaped this one. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to people in the church. This can't be true. Put off stealing, he says, and put on honest work. Why? Because we need to be able to help our fellow members, fellow members of Christ's body. And we all know that most people don't need a lot of encouragement to steal. Retail shrinkage, theft by employees and customers that I've been reading amounts to about 2% of a business's gross sales. Identity theft, as we all know, is a big business. Every time you listen to the radio, see on TV, there's commercials all the time for it. Right? Looting has become a common practice because it, especially making it okay by coupling it with some social justice organization. That makes it okay. And because theft is so common in so many different ways, it becomes a great temptation for Christians when we set our standards by how others function. And stealing goes hand in hand with falsehood that we already looked at. Because thieves usually have to lie and deceive in order not to get caught. But he says believers must stop stealing and instead work hard so they can give to those in need. So what's he getting at? I mean, if you haven't committed any petty theft lately, or if you've forgotten that you have, or maybe you haven't realized that you have, this command is much broader than you think. So I have this quote here from John Stott. Do not steal was the eighth commandment of Moses' law. It had and still has a wide application. Not only the stealing of other people's money or possessions, but also the tax evasion, to employers who take advantage of their workers, and to employees who give poor service, or who work less time than they charge their employers. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg when you think about it. Because it's applicable to things even beyond property and the material resources and maybe in the money of other people. It applies to our usage of what God has given us. I mean, what do we have that God hasn't given us? So every talent, every ability, all that we possess belong to God. We're just stewards. So we don't use it for his glory. We're robbing from him. The Apostle's word isn't just for former petty thieves in Ephesus. It's for folks at Grace Fellowship for you and me. And he's saying to us, the one who steals must steal no more. From a children's perspective, when, when, when your parent tells you to shovel out your room, do you complete it with joy and to the best of your ability? Or do you get by with as little as possible? Maybe not even doing it right because it takes too much time. 
that's stealing. And eventually those dirty clothes are going to reveal themselves when you put them in the drawer with the clean ones. But, but it's important to, re, to see what sin, the sin reveals about the human heart. Because most of us in our setting, when we commit this sin, do so because of selfishness and because maybe we have a sense of entitlement. But Paul's approach, as we've seen, is never just simply stop it, but to replace it with a corresponding godly pattern of living. So he knows when he tells you that you're fighting a temptation, he just tells you to, to, to stop it. It doesn't replace that tendency to sin with a corresponding tendency to live righteously. And, and so he says, in contrast to taking what is not ours, he says to start doing good, honest work. So he's giving his logic that's underneath this command to stop stealing and to start doing honest work. He's telling us that we need to stop viewing ourselves as the center of the world. We're to stop viewing ourselves as entitled. We're meant to use the work that we do, actually, to bless others. God's given us our ability to work to provide not only for ourselves and our families, but also that we can provide for others. So it's not only that we're not to take from others what belongs to them, it's that we are to give, take what God has provided us for ourselves and our families, and give it to others who need it, with an open hand. So I'm not looking to take what is not mine for my own benefit. I'm looking to give what is mine for somebody else's benefit. Which is a radical transformation. In other words, Paul is saying, thief, become a philanthropist. Become a philanthropist by giving of what you've earned to help those who actually have needs. And when you're saved by grace, one of the things that you're saved from is this morbid focus on yourself. You're set free to be able now to give yourself and your possessions away in benefit to others. And so the Apostle Paul says, instead of that sense of entitlement, have a sense of responsibility and privilege in how we get to bless others. Through our own work and through stewardship of the possessions that God's given us. Well, how are you doing? We're about halfway through Paul's list. And so we're not going to finish it this week. <laughs> but we'll look at one more. I think we have time for that. No more corrupting speech. He's going to hit this again in chapter 5, but we'll look at it here too. Actually, he's going to hit it again at the end of the same chapter. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So put off speaking corrupting words and put on words that edify, that build up others in a gracious way. Well, why? Because to do otherwise grieves the Holy Spirit of God who is preserving you for eternity. Now the word for corrupting here literally means rotten. It was used to describe rotten food, especially meat or vegetables, because you know that somewhere in that plastic container of strawberries, there's one that's spoiling. And if you don't find it, its rottenness is going to spread to the ones that are right adjacent to it, and pretty soon to the whole container, which is also the effect of rotten speech. 
it spreads contamination to others. So unwholesome speech really is speech that harms our neighbors. It harms our brothers and sisters in Christ. It tears them down, he says, rather than building them up. Which, of course, comes in a variety of forms. I just thought of a few. You can probably come up with a whole bunch more. It can come in the form of foul or vulgar language. I started out my career as an engineer working with sailors. I worked with Teamsters in a moving company. I spent most of my life working with construction workers. I've experienced firsthand how profanity and vulgar comments can become second nature. Now I'm finding society at large doing the same thing. It's not the kind of speech that edifies. It's not the kind of speech that comes from the vast reservoir of grace given to us by Christ that we operate from. But it doesn't just mean foul and vulgar speech and sexual humor. It also speaks, of course, of of dishonest words, of gossip, of slanderous words that undermine a person's reputation and their character in the eyes of other people. So Paul's words here have not only to do with words that we literally speak, they can also deal with the words that we type. It's amazing what some people will say on the Internet that they would never, ever say in public, speaking face-to-face to that person. Either words that are unkind or untrue or unwholesome. And the question always comes, well, how are we using email? How are we using social media? Are there things that we put there that we, we would like to have, have flashed up here Sunday morning for everybody to see? One of the bloggers that, that's kind of interesting, a woman named Ann Kennedy, blogged this. She said, as COVID has gone on, the platforms I use, Facebook, Twitter, Insta sometimes, have gotten to be more and more intrusive. And one of the chief ways they keep overstepping their bounds is by inviting me to judge and condemn the behavior and thoughts of others. The cycle works like this. Everyone posts, I scroll, I go to bed angry. Which is foolish, because reading the news or even just the banal thoughts of others should be sort of interesting. But these platforms up the emotional ante, and they make everything into a moral consideration, when only some things should be moral considerations. Like, as I continue to bewail and lament, masks should not be political or moral. Honestly, COVID should not be political and moral. But it is, and so there we are. When social media gets out of hand, I put them in timeout for a while. So Paul is challenging us to take responsibility for how we speak for our communication, and to see the importance of it, for good or for ill. Because unwholesome language does at least two things. It breaks down the unity in the body, and it mars our witness to the world around us. So I think those are the main reasons why Paul includes a statement on the effect of this corrupting talk on the person of the Holy Spirit, which I'm going to look at more next week. But I think you probably have plenty to digest already. And a lot of things to apply from this section of scripture. Uh, maybe too much, so we're going to pick up from there next week, God willing. But, but your homework includes, of course, meditating on the concepts that we've addressed briefly today. No more lying. No more anger. No more stealing. No more corrupting speech. And if all these statements of putting off and putting on, and all of those, remember... God's overarching reasons for including this invasive list back in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's where he's going. That's where these things are important, is try to understand and to apply. How can we actually get there? Because it's pretty easy sometimes to slack off on some of these things, especially as you get older, I'm discovering, uh, to figure out you've already got it figured out. Uh, and the standards sometimes, instead of getting higher, get lower. Uh, it's important that we keep short accounts with God on these areas, and we cooperate with him as he tr- uses his Holy Spirit to root out these evil things from our heart. Roots and all. He's after the roots. He's not after the surface stuff. He's not after self-help stuff. He's after getting to the root. And that's where repentance comes in and relying on him comes in. Well, let's pray. Father, you've given us a whole lot to consider, as you always do. I thank you, Father, what you we looked at this morning is humanly impossible, and yet it's exactly what you expect of your disciples, as members of your family. These are not things we realize that we have to dredge up on our own. These are impulses that you place within us already by your Spirit. But I'm so good at covering them up, at trying to defuse them, at trying to put a filter on them, at trying to find some way to get around these things that we know are true. So help us, Father, to deal truthfully with one another, to deal honestly with one another, and to deal honestly with the people around us. I just thank you, Father, that you're going to do these things because we know it's your will, and we know you give us the power to accomplish it. In Jesus' name, amen.